Love transforms everything. Early last year, I read the memoir Untamed by writer and activist Glennon Doyle, which details parts of her life and marriage to soccer star Abby Wambach. It's a life different than my own, but through which I was nevertheless reminded of the transformative power of love and the ways in which love can make us feel and be unabashedly untamed and wild in pursuit of true peace and joy. Today's guest story also reminded me of the same ineffable power of love. Hey everyone, it's Rhoda, and I am so happy to be back with you for episode 139 of the Assyrian Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Christine Yelda, or Tina as she goes by, who grew up near Flint, Michigan. If you're a longtime listener, you will remember Alice and Liz from Flint, whom I had the pleasure of interviewing for episode 24 a couple years ago. Well, like Liz and Alice's parents, Tina's grandparents also immigrated here at the turn of the 20th century. We had a wonderful conversation about her grandmother's incredible and challenging immigration story and eventual settlement in Michigan, and her grandparents' involvement with the Assyrian community in the Flint area, as well as her mom's influential role in the field of dental hygiene in their county. We also spoke about Tina's educational journey and path to her current career as an associate college professor at Grand Valley State University and her experience teaching criminal justice courses. More importantly, we spoke about faith, justice, her coming out, and her marriage to her wife, Mary. I know this may have been her first time speaking out openly about her life on an Assyrian platform after years of feeling disconnected from the Assyrian community, but I'm so honored we had the opportunity to talk about her Assyrian identity and the ways in which this part of her identity has impacted her life and influenced her various life choices and decisions, everything from her faith to her wedding playlist. It's interviews like this and stories like Tina's that make me so proud to be a part of the Assyrian podcast, because as we have said in the past, we hope to feature stories that allow all kinds of listeners from whatever backgrounds they are, to see themselves represented and to find ways to be unabashedly themselves and know that we are stronger together and that strength comes from accepting each other as we are and striving to foster a love for our nation and people that is empathetic, inclusive, and all-encompassing. But before we get into this week's interview, support for this episode comes from the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. If you remember the Alice and Liz episode that I mentioned earlier, then you certainly remember that John Ashana was our very first sponsor. Well, now John has partnered with his incredible wife, Rita, to help you make your homeownership dreams a reality. If you are considering buying or selling a home in Arizona or California, John and Rita are available to help turn your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Oshanas at 209-968-9519 and get to know them a little better by checking out their website, theoshanapartners.com. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast also comes from Tony Caligaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. 
Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, here's Dr. Christine Yelda. Tina, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I am very excited to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Let's start talking about your background and your parents and where they're from. Uh, My parents have, I think, a story that's typical for a lot of people of their generation. My grandparents uh, came over at the turn of the century, 20th century. Um, My paternal grandparents came over on their own. My grandfather came to look for work. My maternal grandparents, my father, my grandfather came to the U.S. for work, but my grandmother uh, was a refugee from uh, the genocide that occurred in northern Iran. Uh, she left uh, her village with other refugees, with her mother and two children. Uh, they were headed towards an internment camp in Bakuba. By the time she arrived 30 days later, her mother and children had died on the side of the road. So I think one of the things to really understand about my family and my parents, and I think it's typical of Assyrians of my age and generation is that um, our parents both raised us to be Assyrian, but also wanted us to assimilate because of the challenges that they faced being the children of refugees. More specifically, my dad uh, grew up on a farm. Uh, His father was well-respected, spoke a number of different languages. Uh, His mother was a traditional healer in the old country. And my sister now uh, is an alternative healer named after my grandmother. So there's this kind of cool link there. My mom grew up in the Flint area Her father was one of the men who were part of the Buick sit-down strike in the 20s. They basically took over the factory. Uh, My grandmother during World War II was a Rosie the Riveter. Uh, And my mother um, was, it's unfortunate you can't interview her. Uh, She was, I think, one of the... strongest and most influential women among Assyrians of her time. Uh, She left school in the mid-40s to go to college. It was unheard of at that time. My grandfather didn't come out of the basement to say goodbye. Uh, At her death, she died in September of 2018. Younger, relatively younger Assyrian women were telling me that They went on to become teachers. They went on to do whatever because of her. Uh, She got her degree in dental hygiene and came back and um, worked in public health in Flint for most of her career. She was actually inducted into the Genesee County Women Hall of Fame. So she, she wasn't a Dr. Mona, but she was her generation of a Dr. Mona in Flint. She established a dental health program for poor children in Flint. And in her heyday, she was checking the teeth of every elementary school child 
she later helped move the Mott Foundation Dental Health Clinic into using those hygienists to do public dental public health in the schools. So oh gosh. Um, if I look at my grandmother and my mother, uh, those were the, the women who really influenced me. I'd say so. Um, Gosh, I feel like we could spend hours just talking about your family and all the things that they went through and what they did. I feel like I want to like keep asking questions about that. Um, What what did your dad do? My dad worked for Buick for 35 years. Uh, He he started out in road records and then he went to uh, the photography department, and they did all the photo work in-house for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, he ended up as, and the, the title is escaping me right now, but he was the building supervisor for the engineering building when he retired. Wow. So, um, did you, you met your uh, grandparents? Um, I, I never met my dad's father. Okay. Um, but I... Uh, We used to go out to the farm. Uh, One of my earliest memories is going out to feed the chickens with (laughs) Grandma Yalda, and I was probably two feet tall, if that, and she had me throw the feed at them, and they came running at me, and and I was like, "Ah," you know, um, very, uh, both sides of the family, very loving, very, they lived their faith. One of my favorite stories about my dad and you can stop me anytime, but. Oh, um, yeah, no, keep going. <laughs> my dad joined the Navy uh, right after high school, and he was in the South Pacific in one one battle. He was on a, I don't know, a destroyer or something. And they moved him from the number one gun to the number two gun, from the front of the ship to the back of the ship. And the front of the ship was hit, and everyone there was killed. And my dad, was in the back of the ship. Well, that in itself, you know, is fate. But in the middle of the night, according to my dad, my grandmother woke up, had this feeling that something was wrong and got down on her, on her knees and prayed all night. So, so one of the things that I got from my family is this, first of all, this sense of if it's your time, it's your time, uh, but also this deep sense of um, faith in things that we can't see. I'm curious about what the experience was like for your grandparents when they first moved here. Did you ever get to talk to them about that and what that was like for them? You know, that's a great question. I never really talked to my dad's parents and my grandfather did not speak a lot of English. My grandmother lived with us for nine years after he passed away. And I actually did a couple of hours of taped interview with her before she died. I was probably 17, 18 at the time. She did not talk much about life here. Uh, She talked about her experiences in the old country and getting here. She was actually a refugee for almost five years. It was at the time that the United States was limiting immigration from the Middle East. 
So she was in Bakuba, Iraq, in uh, an internment camp there until the Red Cross found my grandfather. And then she went to Bombay uh, and lived there and then went to France and finally entered on a French visa. And it took her five years to get here. And what my sense is she got here, she kissed the ground and never looked back. So they first went to Chicago, and I think that's where my mom was born. I don't recall. Uh, and then they moved to Flint, um, and they were part of that group of Assyrians in Flint that helped build the church, mm -hmm. helped buy the cemetery. Uh, if you go to the Assyrian cemetery in Flint and you go in the little building there, you'll see the picture of the church women. And my grandmother is one of those church women. They were very embedded in the Assyrian community. My grandmother did not speak any English. Uh, when my mom started school, she didn't speak much English, um, which is why they never taught us Assyrian, because they wanted us to assimilate. But by the time she died, my grandmother died in her late 80s. She could read the TV guide. She could read. She understood enough about English and American culture to know what was going on in the world. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty typical of Assyrians of that generation. Mm -hmm. And considering the journey that she had to go through to get here, mm -hmm. Gosh, that sounds traumatizing in so many different ways. And it makes sense that she would never want to look back. I imagine some of that had to do with how difficult it was for them to learn and assimilate. And they're like, nope, we're not putting our children through that same thing. Well, and I think the other piece of that for my mom is that she was mistreated when she started school because of her identity, derogatory names, uh, all of that. Uh, so, um, you know, they, they tried to protect us from that. I experienced some of that when I started school. Uh, we Living in Flushing, it was basically all Western Europeans, except for our family and another family with a Hispanic last name. Uh, so any mark of difference made you a target. My parents were very protective, but they all, based on their experiences, but they also, it was no excuse not to go out into the world and do your best. Yeah. Um, do you remember being involved as a kid in any of the Assyrian functions in Flint or, um, what was that oh, like for you? Uh, oh yeah. Um, my primary identity was Assyrian when I was growing up to the, to the point that when I went to Europe with a group from high school uh, when I was 16 and we landed in England and we had to write down our nationality, I wrote Assyrian on the, on the uh, customs card. Uh, so most of our life, every Sunday we were at my grandmother's, we attended pretty much every church dance, Assyrian dance, uh, the 4th of July picnic, uh, great memories. My uncle Emil used to man the soda pop and beer stand. 
so great memories of growing up with other Assyrian kids. Weddings were a big deal. Line dancing, you know, I mean, how can you explain to people who have not danced with every relative and every cousin who arrived in the U.S. in the last 30 years, uh, what it means to link pinkies (laughs) together. Uh, To to the point that when my wife and I got married, we downloaded some Assyrian music because I was committed to having Assyrian dancing at my wedding. That's amazing. (laughs) So a, a deep sense of family and extended family. Everybody's an aunt or uncle, whether we're related or not. And it took me a while to realize that some of the people I've been calling aunt and uncle my whole life, we were, weren't actually related. I, I would say probably the, the biggest influence that had on me is I don't really have that American individualism mm-hmm. uh, that we talk we talk about being what defines americans i have an identity that's based collectively in the groups that i'm part of and the relationships that i have that is super interesting my sister was doing a research project a couple of years ago and she texted our entire family in our group text and she said i want each of you to give me three words that define you. And some of us said things like sister, wife, daughter, um, and others said ambitious and, you know, go-getter. And she said that what she was learning about is that a lot of Americans um, and just people in Western cultures define themselves as individuals, whereas folks who come from other parts of the world define themselves in relationship to others around them. So all of that makes sense to me. (laughs) You went to University of Michigan for your undergrad. So go blue. (laughs) Yeah. I quickly learned that that's um, very, those allegiances are very important um, to Michiganders. And we all hate Ohio State. That's right. (laughs) So you went to University of Michigan. What did you study as an undergrad and what was that experience like for you? Great question. Uh, Let me first give an important acknowledgement to the WARDA scholarship for Assyrians uh, started by my uncle Amos family. I received, I went my first year at Flint U of M, uh, received the Warda Scholarship, which helped considerably with books and other things. I think it was a good idea for me to go to Flint U of M my first year. I was born in November, so I graduated from high school when I was 17. And that year of living at home and going to college kind of helped me grow up and get ready uh, for Ann Arbor. I actually went to Ann Arbor wanting to study religion because at that time I wanted to be a minister. I was actively involved in my church. And I took one class where we debated whether the Bible was inspired or revealed and decided that I really did not want to 
make my faith an intellectual career. So I took classes that I liked. And around the fall of my senior year, I realized that I needed to declare a major and get on with things. Uh, And I looked at all of the classes that I had taken, and they were all grounded in sociology, social studies, psychology, anthropology, and leaning towards justice. So I got my Bachelor of Arts in Education with a major in social studies and psychology. I was at the University of Michigan School of Education at a time when teaching as empowerment was a main focus. So reading uh, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed and being exposed to non-American writers about society and socialization. At some point in my college career, I wrote a paper about the socialization of children towards authority figures. Uh, And that has continued to be a theme for me. Um, And if I back up just a little bit, because of the Assyrian genocide, I took a deep interest in the Holocaust. I was reading about moral responsibility in the Third Reich when I was in high school. Went to Germany in that same trip that I mentioned earlier when I was 16. We were in East Berlin. We went to Dachau, saw Santayana's words written across the gate at Dachau. Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And that became then one of the touchstones for me in terms of my life and my career. Uh, So I became a social studies teacher. In the mid-70s, when there were no jobs available for teachers, so I did a lot of substitute teaching, met some lawyers who were working on law-related education stuff and thought, I'm going to go to law school. I can also say that I was like every other University of Michigan student in the 70s, politically involved, experimenting with a lot of different things. That's when I became much clearer about my Um, political identity, my sexual identity, all of those kinds of things. What was Ann Arbor like in the 70s? Was it anything like Berkeley in the 70s? I wasn't at Berkeley in the 70s, but I can tell you that there was a lot of political activity against the war, against ROTC on campus. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember attending protests in support of, I think it was AFSCME, the union that the janitors and others were part of. So there was a a deep sense of coming to terms with privilege. Education at that point wasn't regulated the way it is now, and society wasn't regulated the way it is now. I don't know that people who I would say probably under 40 can really understand the sense of freedom and privacy that we've lost, but Ann Arbor felt free. And I think, you know, partly you're moving away from home. I grew up in a town of, I think, Flushing had maybe 4,000 people, 7,000 people at a time. And I moved to Ann Arbor where the student population was three or four times that amount. Pot was a $10 misdemeanor. Uh, So, you know, people would hang out and play Frisbee on campus. Uh, but we would also spend long hours in the library. My parents uh, were not wealthy. I worked two jobs all the while I was in school. So I would go to classes. I had a job on campus and a job off campus. 
I became a resident advisor the last several last two years, uh, and that paid for my housing. But it was an opportunity, as college should be, for you to figure out who you are, uh, what you value, and some sense of direction. I tell my students that if we're if we're doing liberal education right, making you curious, people committed to making a difference in the world, you're probably going to have a number of careers as you move through life, as you grow and transform into who you're going to be. But certainly I left Ann Arbor both thinking that anything was possible and also faced with the economic realities of those particular material limitations in the moment. So then you go to law school and you went to Boston University, is that right, for law school? Yes. So I... I I still kind of smile about this. Um, I only applied to Boston University and University of Michigan. And I got accepted to Boston University pretty quickly. And I was on the wait list at University of Michigan. And I thought, I already lived in Ann Arbor. I'm going to go to Boston. Uh, So off I went. Not realizing the cultural differences. My uncle at the time, my uncle Jack was a lawyer. My uncle Paul later became a lawyer. Uh, But I was in school with kids whose fathers were well-known lawyers and judges. And and I went because I wanted to continue to do law-related education. And I was becoming increasingly involved in the women's movement and wanted to learn more about doing justice. So law school, even though I did really well in Ann Arbor, was a struggle for me. I got my degree. I'm proud of it. I did some good work there, anticipated. uh, For example, one of the legal briefs that I wrote about gay rights actually reflected some of the language that the Supreme Court later used in some of its decisions. So I was able to anticipate um, how the law could be used. But in that moment, that wasn't recognized or particularly valued. So I used to stand at Boston University uh, is an urban college. It has, I don't know, five or six floors. And I used to stand on the top floor with my kaleidoscope and look at the city and move it around to remind me that there were a lot of different ways of looking at things. My last year at Boston University, I became an intern at Greater Boston Legal Services in the Domestic Violence Unit. So I had the opportunity, even while I was in law school, with adult attorney supervision uh, to try cases, to represent uh, women who had no other resources, often because when they left their abusive partners, they left everything behind. Mm -hmm. But through that experience, I met a woman who had practiced on the Navajo reservation. And I was talking with her one day and there's this beautiful picture of her standing on a rock in shorts with a blue sky behind her. And I said, where's that? I think she said Tuba City or Chinle. And I said, what were you doing there? She says, oh, I was practicing law. I said, wait, you can live in a place that beautiful and practice law at the same time? So is that what led to you then going to Arizona? Yeah. So again, I applied for a job at Flint Legal Aid, and I applied for a job with DNA, People's Legal Services. 
and was hired there in their Window Rock office in 1981. And it got there in May of 81. Shortly after that, I don't remember if it was that same year, uh, the Omnibus Reconciliation Act of 1981 significantly slashed funding for legal services to the poor. And our office in Window Rock went from, I think, seven attorneys to two. And I was one of the two. So at one point, I had probably 100 cases representing individuals. I want to ask more about that. But you said something about your involvement in the women's movement. Mm -hmm. A lot of women of my generation don't really understand the struggles that led to um, the women's movement and why it was necessary for those protests and for women asking for rights that they thought they should have. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always curious about that era and what it was like. What were some of the things that you and others like you were speaking out against that we probably take for granted now. So I'd love to hear more about that. So um, my involvement in these issues started in Boston, but in Boston, it was more related to a growing sense of a women's community, which at that time translated in large part to growing awareness and coming together of lesbians. But we began to see then women's bookstores coming up. Politically, although I did more, I was more involved in this when I moved to Arizona, some of the triggers for the women's movement at that time were, as I mentioned before, domestic abuse. Uh, now we call it intimate partner violence. Then it was wife battering. Mm -hmm. And and so we we worked to help support battered women's shelters. Marital rape was still legal across the country. Economic disparities continue. Part of the challenge, uh, in Phoenix, I was actively involved in a group called Take Back the Night, uh, just trying to raise awareness to create safety for women in our everyday lives. So uh, there was there were particular political agendas, but much of it was about women finding their voices, making claims, figuring out how to make those claims. If you look at some of the literature on human rights, some of the feminist critiques of human rights say we can identify human rights, but if you can't enjoy them, they're really kind of useless. Mm-hmm. And And so we were trying to move from this growing demand for equality to trying to figure out what that really meant. And some of the feminist literature at the time, there were tensions between uh, the sameness doctrine and the difference doctrine. Are women the same as men so that we should have equality? Or are women different from men? And should that difference be recognized? And so Mm -hmm. we should have equality. It was, in large part, a movement led by white women, although people of women of color increasingly claimed their voices and their own claims 
including against white women, Middle Eastern women, really nowhere to be found for the most part as a separate voice, although certainly growing up in a Syrian culture and community at the time, deeply patriarchal. I mean, I stepped away from the Assyrian community in large part for many years because I was no longer, did not think I was the kind of woman that the Assyrian community would embrace. So I, I think if, if you think about what motivated that, it was, as I look back, a strong sense that women should be safe in their own homes, that the public-private boundary that had been used by the law to justify whatever went on behind that veil of privacy of the home needed to be broken in order to ensure the safety of women and children, and that we needed to develop institutional mechanisms to ensure that women's rights and rights claims were put forward and enforced. Now, I will say all of that happened, and at the same time, those mechanisms became increasingly captured by the state. So dependent on federal or state funding and regulation and reporting and all of those things then that solidify um, and almost make static forward progress. So there are, there are women who continue to push these ideas forward. Um, I have not really been involved in women's issues for some time. That is all very helpful and, and gives us, I think, a framework for like what was happening at the time and where it all stemmed from. I mm-hmm. think one of the one of the things that I think we continue to, even people of my generation, continue to kind of s- struggle with when it comes to defending feminism, if you will, even at a time like this, is that same question of like sameness and the the rights, right? Like it's not that women want to be better than men or have more than men. It's that we should all have access to the same kinds of rights. And just as individuals are different, women and men can be different in their own way, but that doesn't mean that their access to economic or educational or all these other kinds of opportunities should be limited based on their gender. And so I feel like that will always be something that I hope it's not something we always continue to struggle with. I hope at some point it's like, yeah, duh, (laughs) you know? Well, and and I think without without getting too theoretical, when we start looking at the intersectionality of identities, gender, race, class, we we necessarily have to shift from, I think, a fairly static concept of equality to a more dynamic concept of equity. And we've seen that happen, I think, increasingly over the last decade, maybe, because we know that white women may face certain barriers or boundaries, but women of color face more significant barriers and boundaries. And depending on what they're doing and where they are, men of color face different kinds of limitations and boundaries and throw 
sexual orientation and gender identity in there. And so so I think part of what has interested me theoretically about rights and rights movements and rights claims is trying to parse out the complexity of identities through this kind of intersectional model, but also recognizing that different identities are salient at different times and that we have more or less privilege. So that exercise that your sister asked you to do, I do with my students at the beginning of each semester when I'm teaching culture, crime, and justice. And we can see that, yeah, that young man who claims a white identity actually might not be as privileged because he's gay or in other ways. Yeah, our our identity has so many different facets and mm-hmm. any of the workshops I've participated in um, that have to do with that make you see yourself in a completely different way. There is not just one word that defines any of us mm-hmm. and the complexity and beauty of human beings is that intersectionality of all of these ideas, all of these parts of your identity. Can we talk a little bit more about that when it comes to you? You mentioned at some point you stepped away from the Assyrian community because you didn't feel like you were the kind of woman that they would embrace. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about that because one of the ongoing themes of our interviews and of listeners who have uh, really seen themselves in some of our interviews has been, I didn't think of myself as a Syrian enough. And then I listened to so-and-so's story and I thought, oh, there isn't just one way to be a Syrian. And so I'd love to hear more about that when it comes to you. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I certainly wonder sometimes if I'm Assyrian enough, just broadly in terms of that question, Uh, and especially in relation to Assyrians who arrived after the first Iraq war, after the second war, somewhat in relation to people who fled Iran after the revolution. But not speaking Assyrian, I have often been dismissed by other Assyrians as not real Assyrian because I don't know Assyrian. And I have an interesting response in some ways because what I've seen being raised in an Assyrian culture that was brought to the United States and perpetuated since the early part of the 20th century is seeing how much later arrivals to the U.S. seem more Arabized. So it makes me wonder to what extent as Assyrians became more colonized in the Middle East that we've been able to hold on to some sense of what it means to be Assyrian that's I won't say more authentic, but certainly predates that colonizing experience. So the whole idea of what does it mean to be an Assyrian is one that that has always challenged me. Um, In 1996, I think it was, my sister and I were on a panel at the National Assyrian Convention in, in California, maybe Turlock or somewhere near there. We did a presentation that was titled, We Are the Stories We Tell Each Other, Being an Assyrian Woman Today. And we talked about 
issues of identity and authenticity and the way that our identities are collectively created and maintained through the narratives that we share. And, you know, through certain cultural practices and artifacts, dancing, food, things like that. But in large part, the stories that we tell each other about who we are. Well, that was 1996. I came out, I don't know, I was 17, 18 years old. So I had been out among everybody but my family and Assyrians for a long time. And in 1996, I only knew two other gay people who identified as Assyrian. I still don't know if there's anyone else out there. Um, I only fully came out to my family three years ago when my wife and I got married. Big waste of time because they all loved me, embraced me, embraced her. So this whole idea of who we are and who we're supposed to be as Assyrians, I'm not sure how much of it is cultural change. I don't know how much of it is internalized oppression. Certainly, I know people who have had terrible experiences coming out to their families. At that conference, my sister and I were very nervous because we did not know if presenting ourselves as independent, educated, outspoken women was going to be accepted. And this elderly man came up to us before the conference and he's pointing at us and he's speaking in Assyrian and we don't know what he says and my heart is dropping. And he says, as is translated to us, I am very proud of you girls. We do the presentation and my aunt is sitting in the audience. And we're so nervous because we don't know how she's going to respond. And she comes up afterwards and says, you've made our family proud. So I think just like my mother who left Flint, not looking back, even though her father did not come out of the basement to say goodbye. My sister and I, and a lot of the women in our family and other Assyrian women have launched ourselves out regardless of how we were going to be seen. So we, I guess what I would say is that I have chosen to be authentically myself and whether I can now claim to also be authentically Assyrian, I'm not quite sure what an authentic Assyrian is at this point. Gosh, I am struck by your observation of Assyrians who immigrated to the United States later on and their culture or yeah, their, their, their expression of their culture seemed more Arabized to you that blew my mind because it it resonates and I can see I can see that which is why it's so complicated when we try to figure out who's more Assyrian than the other person because mm -hmm. we've all been influenced by the other cultures we've we've been a part of so of mm -hmm. course I'm also struck by your experience presenting at that convention and like the moment where you thought this man was probably saying some awful things to you, but he really wasn't. And what that must have been like for you. 
And I'm curious how much of that for you specifically stemmed from this hidden part of your identity that people in that room had no idea about, but you did. And was there a moment where you were like, well, now they're going to know, they're all going to know. And what is this going to be like? So I, like, I want to know what was going on through your head during that presentation when it came to that. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I, until relatively recently, I compartmentalized different parts of my life. So, for example, when I moved to Western Michigan with, let's see, 2004, so about 17 years ago now, uh, 16 and a half years ago, it was a relatively conservative place. Uh, I moved the year that Michigan passed Proposition 2 which explicitly excluded gay men and lesbians from civil rights or marriage. I don't even remember what the law was right now. But I moved from Phoenix, where I'd been out and involved in the gay community for a long time, to community and an institution where, as I joked, I felt uh, I had turned my watch back to 1956. So growing up when I did, coming out when I did, 1976, there weren't a lot of publicly gay people outside of the communities that we were part of. I learned to compartmentalize and I think did it pretty effectively. So honestly, my sexuality did not cross my mind when I was in California because there's a certain performance that one learns to do. When I published the article, that you mentioned, you know, in a way that was coming out, it was certainly coming out publicly in the academic community, but who reads academic articles? You're probably the first person who's read that article in 30 years. So those issues really were less salient. You also, I think, as you grow older and wiser, come to understand that your sexuality, as we've talked about, is a relatively small, though significant, part of who you are. And while there was a period in my life where I clearly claimed a lesbian identity, eh, now, you know, I, it, it's it's not particularly the identity that tops my list. For me, it was more about being an outspoken, unmarried woman at the age that I was, who just really was unwilling or unable to suppress myself in order to be in a relationship with a traditional Assyrian man. I sometimes, when I talk to friends who are gay and who talk about that experience of that you talked about compartmentalizing the different parts of their identity, it sounds exhausting. Mm -hmm. And it also makes me, it's also very interesting that you said, you know, at, at some point, being a lesbian was this thing like at the top of my list, and now it's not. And so it's interesting how that changes over time. Mm -hmm. What do you think led to you saying, not going to compartmentalize anymore? I think for the first time meeting someone that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with and deciding, I mean, we're both, we're both strong people of faith. She's a hospice chaplain. She asked my mother if we could get married. And my mother 
hesitated because she was concerned about kind of the public response to that. When my family, extended family, embraced the idea and my mom relaxed into it, you know, love transforms everything. And I mean, we still don't have legal protections in Michigan. You mentioned the federal law that the House passed. Well, they passed it before and it wasn't approved in the Senate. But, you know, at some point you live your life. Um, There's a lot of different things that can change our lives and laws and rights are only one of them. Tell me about your wife. What is her name and where did you meet? My wife's name is Mary. I want to be respectful of her privacy. Uh, We actually met through my former pastor, worked with her, connected us. We went on a blind date, and that was, I think, about five and a half years ago. She was actively involved in Catholic teaching and um, ministry, and recently has stepped away from the Catholic Church because of a lot of things that have been going on, including locally. She's been a hospice chaplain for about seven years now. I think she has a lot to say about that thin line between life and death. She was diagnosed with cancer three years ago, went through treatment and was cancer-free for two and a half years. And this past December, they found a brain tumor and removed it. And she's currently undergoing chemo. She did radiation. She's currently undergoing chemo. Um, So when I said there's a lot of things that can challenge and transform our lives separate from laws or regulations or community. In part, I was thinking of her. So you come to understand that the only life we have is the one that we're living. And it's important for us to live it as authentically as possible. Most of my aunts and uncles have lived until their 90s, mid 90s, most of them. I've still got 30 years left so so it took me a little while to you know be fully comfortable with who I am but I've got a lot of life left God willing to live to express that you talked a little bit about your wedding and your commitment to play Syrian music your was your mother at your wedding my mom was at my wedding very frail but one of the things that we asked her to do was to say the Lord's Prayer in Assyrian. Uh, That is one of the things that my parents taught us. I mean, we knew body parts. And when my grandmother was alive, I understood a lot, although I never really spoke Assyrian. Uh, But my mom was at our wedding. Um, We have beautiful pictures with her and the extended family on both sides. She loved Mary. My mom, as I said, was a person of deep faith, God listened to her when she prayed. Um, And so, you know, she's just on the other side of that veil. Tell me a little bit about your faith journey. I, I, I refer to it as a faith journey because I think that's what it is. I think for most people, it's not linear, at least it hasn't been for me. There's been ups and downs. <laughs> it's a relationship like any other. And so I'm curious to know a little bit about yours. As I mentioned, I had wanted to 
major in religion and I actually wanted to be a minister when I was growing up. I was actively involved in youth group at church, really took the Christian message seriously and especially in terms of doing justice. And when I realized I was gay, felt that there was no place for me in the church. Uh, So I explored different things. You know, at that time in the early 80s, there was a shift towards the goddess movement in the area where I lived. So I explored some of that, did some reading in Buddhism, still meditate regularly, stepped away from the church for a while completely and from religious experience, but felt like there was something missing. I spent... I don't know, I'll say maybe a decade, it might have been more or less, involved with a community of women who were Native American who put on a women's Sundance. So through that, I uh, came to have a deep sense of the creator and of a more naturalistic relationship with God that I think still influences my faith, but I'm not Native American and I'm not interested in cultural appropriation. And when my dad died in 1993, he died suddenly of a heart attack. We'd had a disagreement the hour before he died. And then my mom and I left the house and we returned to find him gone. I was deeply upset. And the minister who met with us, who did his funeral, I said to him, I was really angry with my dad when he died. And he said, it's okay. He knows you loved him. Something about that interaction touched me in a way that I don't know that I can explain. But when I returned to Phoenix, I looked for a church. And I found a church nearby. It was a Methodist church. There was a woman pastor there. So I started going to church on and off. And when I moved to Grand Rapids, I found a Methodist church and I went there for almost a decade until issues around sexuality became more than I could bear at the time. When I finally joined the church, it was after some soul searching. And part of that soul searching, honestly, was my thinking about the Assyrians who, at least according to the Assyrians, were the first group in the Middle East to become Christian after Christ's death, um, and who had for 2000 years died because of that faith. And I could feel for me how much that was a part of me. And I was sitting one day in my living room, and I always felt like I had a deep relationship with God, but not so much with Jesus. And I just prayed, please show me what it means to be a Christian. And I felt this warm fire and energy in my heart. And it radiated through my whole chest. And no, it was not a heart attack. It was this deep and abiding sense of love. And for me, you know, it's like I was a lesbian when it wasn't popular. Now I'm a Christian when it's not all that popular. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's, it's who I am. 
Uh, my brother and sister have had different faith journeys. One of the wonderful things about our family is even though we've landed in different places, our values, our morals, our ethics are consistent across those different traditions. I can't imagine now a life without prayer, a life without faith. When Mary was diagnosed again, you know, you always know she was stage four when she was diagnosed the first time that this is probably going to be a long-term struggle. We just made a commitment to be faithful and hopeful. My experience and sense of God is as the great creative power of the unknown. I have in my life experienced and been granted great gifts that I never could have imagined or created for myself. And so the foundation of my life at this point is trying to remain open to the unimaginable and the impossible. And it's not sitting around waiting for miracles, and it's not passively accepting whatever comes my way. But, you know, as that saying goes, there's more here than the eye can see. And I, I trust that. It reminds me, I think it's St. Augustine, but I don't remember. Um, but there's that great quote about how... Um, trying to understand God is trying to take the ocean and like fit it in in a bucket. I often think about that just in terms of the world in general, how there's so much that we can't possibly know and being open to that and being acknowledging that (laughs) to begin with is a, is a good first step. I'm also struck by your, experience both with love that you experienced um, in a personal relationship that allowed you to get to the place where you're like, okay, this is this is all of me. This is who I am. But also the the love of God that you felt. Can we talk about justice? Yeah. How do you define justice? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That's a great question. There's a part of me that wants to say justice is in the eye of the beholder. And I'm trying not to intellectualize things. I I honestly am. One of the reasons I went back to school to get my PhD was after studying law and practicing law, I saw that there were limits to law and I wanted to learn more about justice. So, you know, I can... I can give you a discourse about substantive justice and procedural justice and justice as fairness and justice as equity. But much of what my early research looked at is how people, and in that case, young people, make sense of justice, what justice means to them. So I think justice is a complex dynamic. We can define it in terms of just outcomes or just processes, just actions. But at the end of the day, if people don't feel like they've had justice, the rest of it is irrelevant. Part of what interests me when I think about justice relates to the idea of legal consciousness. How do people understand and make sense of law, norms and expectations, individual and collective? 
um, if we only think of justice in an institutional way, Kitty Calavita, who was anthropologist, said one time, institutions don't act, people do. So we've seen recently the shift towards training people who are perceived to be unjust or where institutions appear to be unjust at its heart. But I think more importantly, a deep respect for the innate humanity and unique being of each person. So I think for me, uh, if I define what's really just, it falls into restorative justice the idea of reconciliation. Again, back to that idea we talked about at the beginning of community, of wholeness. It's not just one individual who's been harmed. It's the whole society that's been damaged. So for me, personally, a sense of justice is what Dr. King called a positive peace. It's not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of peace. It's the presence of justice. It's the presence of love. It's the presence of reconciliation. It's the presence of understanding. It's the presence of forgiveness. It's the presence of surrender. It's not punitive. It's not retributive. Is justice, this person committed a heinous act and we're going to lock them up for the rest of their lives and believe that they can never be transformed? That's justice to a good number of people in this country. It's not justice to me. Is that naive? Perhaps. Perhaps. You, you teach criminal justice classes, and then there's the culture crime and justice, justice <laughs> course um, that you teach. I'm curious if after last summer and the growing attention in the United States on criminal justice reform, which has been there for a long time. And I, but I think this last summer, it was a boiling point, if you will. How has that changed or has that changed your teaching at all when you teach those courses? If it hasn't changed your teaching because you've always been teaching that, how has it changed your experience of teaching those courses with your students? Boy, that's a great question. Uh, no, it hasn't changed my teaching because I have been teaching those things. I'd say, well, I don't know how long ago, six years, eight years, a decade, I started using an article about transforming police departments from warriors to guardians. We have a police academy at Grand Valley. The director of our P police academy started making that shift some time ago. The interesting thing is that five years ago, the young people, mostly young white men, but many others who wanted to become police officers pushed back against that. And so one year I had the director come in and he basically said the same thing. So for many years, as I was talking about justice issues in that class, some of my students' evaluations would mark me as a quote-unquote liberal with an agenda. I think my political views are more complicated than that. Uh, that's a whole nother conversation. But what I have seen in the last couple of years, and it's happened in that class as well as the human rights class, is students themselves 
are curious about and longing for a more just society. That's not true of everyone, but it's increasingly true. So in my classes, what I tried to do is create, and I think I've been relatively successful regardless of gender or racial and ethnic identity, uh, to create a place where we can talk about the hard questions civilly. I, I know that a class is working well, especially that class, by the middle of the semester when I can sit back and say, talk amongst yourselves, and they do. So I've never been much of a lecturer although I can do that at Arizona State. I taught classes of over 200 people. I'm more interested in creating an open, supportive place where students can be curious and creatively engaged, monitoring and facilitating that conversation so that it's safe and fair and all of those things that we want in an educational environment. But we are all quite capable in conversation with each other of understanding these problems and how they impact everyday lives. And if I'm doing my job right as a teacher, um, we may or may not disagree, but we will certainly understand each other better by the time we're done. What is your favorite thing about teaching? Helping the students to become more fully who they are. There's the pedagogy. There's the hidden pedagogy, as they talk about it in the literature, which is more about socialization. And then to me, there's the pedagogy of the heart. I think students blossom. They take risks. They are open to new ideas. They're willing to hear and listen to people who disagree with them if they feel respected and valued for who they are. Um, I've taught a lot of different classes. I've probably taught between Arizona State and Grand Valley 20 different classes in law and justice. The curriculum is 10% of teaching. 90% is what you do with the students. Now that's been harder online, but it's what I love best. I've always thought that teaching is a craft and you hone it as an educator. How do you think your teaching has changed from when you first started to now? Um, I, I would say I would go beyond teaching as a craft and say that teaching is an art. I started out as a junior high social studies teacher. I did a stint as a junior high phys ed teacher when it was the only job I could get. I started running in that class and, uh, you know, ran a, by the end of the semester, everyone was running a mile and I continued to run for a decade after that. I haven't always done it well. I think, again, as we talked about before, we like to think of professional development or social development as linear. Sometimes I'm a better teacher than other times. I think what's changed most dramatically, and it's unfortunate, is that we increasingly are encouraged to rely on technology. So what has changed the most for me is teaching is a lot more work than it used to. 20 years ago, I would walk into the classroom having read the material, had set of lecture notes outlined and discussion questions. The students would have read the material and we would engage with that material for an hour and 15 minutes. Now, just the way I was as an undergraduate, most students are working, some of them full-time, some of them more than one job, 
uh, just to stay in school. They are understandably much more pragmatic. They want to know what they need to do to earn the grade. So I have not become more regulatory, but I've become more structured. I don't know that it's better, but I want my students to succeed in whatever I can do to help them. That's what I'll do. We, we talked a little bit about safety for women and how that was one of the things that started, you know, was at the root of the women's rights movement and also children. I also noticed you did, you were, you created this anti-bullying project that piloted in Arizona and Michigan called Just Kids School Safety. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I haven't done that work for, I don't know, six or seven uh, years now. Um, I think it's a good program. I did not want to replicate it without studying it. And I, I just was unable because of other circumstances to really give it the attention that it deserved. But what we did is we would work with teachers and ask kids in the schools to talk about a time that they were bullied. And they would do it as one of their writing assignments. Uh, this narrative approach is something that I was part of a research team when I was there at Arizona State, and we studied youth conflict in uh, urban high school, and we used this narrative approach. But for the Just Kids project, we used what's called playback theater. So we would take their stories, and uh, I had a group of college kids that worked with me each time. And from their stories, we would put together three or four scenarios, then create dramatic skits based on those scenarios. Then we would go back in the schools and perform those scenarios to the kids and have a conversation with them afterwards. We came up with a list of things that kids could do, S-A-F-T-E-Y, Honestly, I can't remember what each of them stood for, but it was, you know, tell an adult for T. The most important thing is for you to be involved for a Y, things like that. Uh, so it was based on what's now come to be called bystander involvement, but it was a, it was a way to identify what was going on in schools, validate the young people's experiences, and then share with them some mechanisms uh, so that they could, uh, as part of their youth culture, handle some of this themselves. Because one of the things we learned in the research at the high school was there's a lot of conflict that never comes to adults' attention and that youth handle, either often productively. One of the interesting things that came out of the Just Kids project was in each time that we did it, kids having the courage to say, what do we do if the teacher doesn't do anything? And so it also helped us help kids find a way to voice their questions about the authorities who are supposed to be keeping them safe. And these were high school students? Oh, no, these were sixth oh. graders. One of the school districts in Western Michigan had us do this project for all of their sixth graders in the district. We usually end all of our interviews with one question, and that is, if you could say one thing to all of our listeners around the world, what would that thing be? Jeez. <laughs> there's, I guess there's so many things that 
could be said, but I'm going to go back to what I learned from my family. Each of us, regardless of who we are, who our families are, where we grew up, where we come from, where we have landed, share a common humanity. We have been given a gift of life and time that is limited, but what we have the capacity to do is infinite. As a friend of mine used to say, life is messy and complex. And while it might be trite, one thing that has kept me moving forward is knowing that the only way through it is through it. If I look at my family, if I look at my 90-something aunts and uncle who are still alive, the ones who died in their mid-90s, who saw tremendous change in almost 100 years of their life. They lived well. They stayed as active as possible. They remained as independent as possible. But most importantly, they were willing to be flexible and resilient in the face of change. For me, being open to being transformed by life is the most important gift that we can accept that life gives us. Otherwise, we might as well close the lid on the box ourselves and call it a night. I used to teach a kindergarten reading class. And there was a book we used to read aloud to the kids called Going on a Bear Hunt. It's a family going on a bear hunt. And every page, they come to some kind of an obstacle, whether it's a puddle or a jungle. And the repeating like the refrain is basically you can't go over it you can't go under it you have to go through it Mm -hmm. so that's what I was thinking about as you said that and the thing about being open to being transformed is simple but profound so I I really appreciate that yeah and Um, and I guess I, I would I would punctuate that with stay faithful and hopeful That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Don't forget to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us and share this episode with others. May you also love and be loved in a way that allows you to be yourself authentically and untamely. See you next Tuesday.